0: The whole separation of the technologists in cyber from the technologists in IT comes back to that trust issue as well. Like, I can't trust IT to do the right things. Like, I can't trust them to patch. So I've got to sit over here over their shoulder and scan. Howdy, y'all, and welcome
1: to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Drew Simonis, CISO at Juniper Networks, former CSO at Hewlett Packard Enterprise, former CISO at Willis. You get the idea. Drew has been a security executive for some time and at some pretty impressive places. Now Drew and I follow each other on LinkedIn and one of the things I love about Drew is that we don't always agree on things and yet Drew is always extraordinarily civil when disagreement arises. Civil discourse is a lost art in these modern times, especially on social media and I value all my conversations with Drew, both public and private and I'm grateful that he's here with me today chatting about doing more by doing less. So Drew, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch.
0: Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host,
1: Alan Alford. All right, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your day job and a bit about your background in cyber?
0: Yeah. Well, my day job is uh, as the Chief Information Security Officer for Juniper Networks, which I hope is a company many of you would have heard of. We're one of the leading producers of networking infrastructure. I look after the internal information security for the organization, so your normal IT plumbing and uh, ensuring that all the things that keep the company running are kept safe. But I also have a governance role in other spaces, so generally making sure that the products that we have, the services that we have, that we have visibility and transparency about the security, even, even if I don't have those operational responsibilities. So it's a little bit of a mix. As far as my background, I've been in cyber forever. I like to say since we were idiots, because you probably feel the same way sometimes. We didn't know what we were doing. 25 years ago, I started my career as a postmaster for, at the time, Advantis, which was later acquired by IBM. It was a a Sears and IBM joint venture, if you can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm picturing that one. That's, yeah, it, uh, it led to a lot of things. Like we had network infrastructure in just about every Sears store in the country. And sometimes during an outage, you'd have to roust a Sears store manager from their sleep so the network technicians could get into the store. So I took a role as a postmaster. I was in customer support, but I took a role as a postmaster. And back then, the postmaster was responsible for dealing with complaints about the ISP's users. And our users were doing some inappropriate things focusing on the government, uh, governmental agencies, just as they do today. And so it really opened my eyes to the reality of, I won't call it cybercrime, but back then it was more that hobbyist uh, hacker, but got into the investigations and and just started really learning more about it from there. I moved into to a sort of full-time security role and put the first firewalls on the network. And when I say it was sort of the time of idiocy, because because we went into the data center and we installed these firewalls in IDS, they were like wheel group, pre-Cisco NetRanger type stuff. And then we put the console up and we closed the door and walked back to our desks. And we're like, well, that's what you do with an IDS. You just turn it on. So we didn't have all the nuance of a 24-7 SOC or a SIM. or These things had not really been invented yet. And I've moved through since then as an engineer, as an analyst, worked at Semantic, worked at IBM, worked at at and I've been around in a lot of roles and really have enjoyed the evolution, both personally in my own career, but also watching the industry grow and expand.
1: I love it. And I'm going to, you know, you're talking about your postmaster days. True story. In 1996, I was the webmaster for the state of Texas. I worked for the government for a grand total of about six months, my entire career. It's all I could handle. I went back to the private (laughs) sector after six months. But during that six months, I ran the state of Texas webpage. And the webmaster at state.tx.us received every email from any citizen who wanted to gripe at the government, right? So nice. apparently I was personally the government to gripe at. And my favorite one of all time was a woman who requested that we move the deer crossing sign to further down the road and have the deer cross there. She didn't like where the deer were crossing and thought if we moved the sign, the deer would cross at uh, you know, the new location of the sign. And this was an urgent matter for the state of Texas, obviously. All right. So we talked before the show about this notion of yours about doing more by doing less How can security teams be more successful by enabling good decision-making versus trying to keep everyone from falling off a cliff?
0: to me, the mindset is trust. Uh-huh. We have a real problem in our industry, I think, of trusting people, whether that is because we think we know better, or we've seen too many bad decisions being made, or or whatever, right? We get into this point where, you know, I've heard it in so many different ways, we're the adult in the room, or, you know, we're the smartest people in the room. And it's always this very dismissive, very condescending approach to our colleagues who, who mm-hmm. have very important jobs to do on their own. And, and so, you know, low trust culture, you get to this point where you have to be watching over everybody. You know, I think about it in the context of almost child rearing. You know, when you have your youngsters, you helicopter parent them these days, right? That's the thing people do. They watch over them, they go to the park, they take them places, they arrange them play dates. Everything's very controlled and and very managed. Eventually, you have to start loosening that up. And that's your adolescence. Adolescence is kind of moderate trust where you've hopefully educated your children enough that you can let them make decisions on their own, but you're still checking in. You're still looking at their grades. You're still getting to know their friends. You're still wondering where they are on a Friday night. And then there's high trust, right, which is where... You let people behave independently and, you know, you hope that all the good work that you've done over the years is going to pay off and that people will make good decisions. But what you let them live with the consequences. And right. we, I think, as an industry are stuck in that low trust way. And that low trust thinking demands that our organizations try to grow and scale to the size of the problems that modern companies are creating. But as you look at things like digital transformation, which is increasingly adding complexity and adding technology, you look at the sort of explosion of third parties, the mobility, the work from anywhere, all these things, right? The, our mm-hmm. ability to keep up and to operate in a low trust environment with this explosion of technology and attack surface or whatever we want to call it is really the dilemma that, you know, I started looking at and thinking, how can we overcome that? How can we move from low trust to high trust?
1: Okay. So, so now I'm with you. I think it's a great foundation. I think the trust metaphor is its own unique conversation, right? Like, I think we could do a full hour just on that alone. But tying that into the doing more by doing less. Yeah, you're right. Let's deconstruct that now. So let's go through that. So tech stack teams, I think you've already given one example there, but let's, let's dive into that a little bit more. If we're trying to improve yeah. this trust model, and if we're trying to do more by doing less, how does the tech stack team sort of extend that olive branch and, and save themselves some work in the, house, you know, in the interim as well?
0: Yeah, you know, it's about truly integrating security into operations. We've talked forever about build it in versus bolted on. But really, fundamentally, we still want to be bolted on. What we mean when we say that is bring us in earlier, right? So it doesn't mean start solving the problem earlier. It just means we want to be respected. We want a seat at the table in architecture, in third-party selection or whatever. But what we really need to do is to empower those tech teams to operate independently so that they don't need to bring us in. And then they can begin building it in, right? It's it's the real outcome of build-in versus bolt-on is when the technology teams can operate independently of security guidance. They don't need to bring in a security architect or anything like that because they have the skills and expertise and they leverage those skills and expertise in a way that solves not just the technology problem, not just scalability, not just uh, interoperability, but but security as well. So Mm -hmm. it's really about creating that ownership sense. And that'll be a theme we talk about, I think, throughout this conversation is, is building that sense of ownership versus taking ownership from somebody. Right. I guess ties into the GRC function too.
1: Like this is a nice segue into GRC. I'm guessing what your answer is going to be here, that GRC can lord the policies and the governance over someone or they can cooperate and, you know, seed ownership and encourage ownership on the other side of the fence whenever they're doing one of these audits. Like, what's your take for GRC for how we kind of fit this model?
0: Yeah, GRC is the worst at this. I call them the risk magnet, right? Because I think all this comes back to normal organizational bureaucracy dynamics, where the more things you solve the bigger your organization has to be to solve them the bigger your organization is the, the higher you get promoted you're better at general management right I mean so it's this it's this self-fulfilling feedback loop that says growth is the imperative and so I need to I need to take problems from other people so the, the risk magnet is is where you know instead of taking a business leader and saying you know what you're selecting a third party to outsource services to or to build a partnership with or something like that right. here's how you can do that securely It's instead like, I'm going to do all the assessment of that supplier for you. I'm going to do all the oversight of the security of that supplier, even though you're already looking at their performance, right? You're already looking at their SLAs. You're already looking at at the economic return, but I'm going to do the security part for you. And then... I'm gonna do that across a lot of different domains and I'm gonna bring all those problems into me and I'm gonna really I'm gonna focus less on on governance and more on compliance and use compliance as a way to drive down risk. And so now we're to your point, we're defining these policies that are written for us and not for them that are driving things like issue management, which is a huge problem in most large mm-hmm. organizations. And and my bias is is obviously towards large organizations, but like you spend so much time like tell me all the mistakes you're making. It's almost like a priest confession, you know. Tell me about your sins and we'll log them in my issue management tracker and then right. I'll come back and chase you down, which is usually different than how they manage their other problems. So if you're thinking about a project, right, the project manager has an issue log, uh, they address those issues as part of their project and and delivery is done when all the issues have been fixed. Maybe that's the end of their warranty, right? But security is like, no, we're going to track those over here. And so in in all these things, we create these sidecar processes and and through those sidecar processes, introduce inefficiency. And so instead of, you know, building a risk management function, if you look at your risk management function, function, and you've got a bunch of people tracking issues for somebody else, and you've got a bunch of people sitting down and identifying those shortcomings, you probably have a bad risk management team. What they should be doing, in my opinion, sort of doing less is, how do I build a risk management framework where you can answer your own questions and identify how big your own problem is and develop your own plan to address it using tools maybe that I've supplied to you, and now I can start scaling. Now a hundred people can leverage that. Like if I can teach procurement people how to identify a high risk supplier versus bringing that to me, then I have as many extra security people as I do procurement people. And so by distributing that work, by making it part of a larger whole, you really begin to solve some of the scale challenges that we face, I think.
1: Yeah, it's a center of excellence model is what you're espousing. And I think the phrase I'm going to use here to describe the phenomenon you're, you're talking about here is willful isolation, right? Mm. And, and I think to your point earlier, you you said it's sort of coming from this place of almost arrogance, right? Like it's, I'm going to be isolated from you and I'm going to manage all the risk over here because I can't trust you, peon, to manage risk. Right. And you're right. If you educate and empower, then, you know, why can't they manage their own risk?
0: Yeah. And you have to live with the fact that they may, they may make a bad decision. You know, this notion that security people have perfect knowledge that they know, you see a lot of this judgmental belief that you made a bad decision, I would have made a better one. Just as likely, I would have made a bad decision too. So you have to really approach our chief executive, Juniper, one of the principles he wants us to live by is, is assume good intent. Like Assume that your colleagues are trying to do the right thing. They're not trying to screw you over or screw up a problem. Right. That right. They're trying their best with what they know to make the best decision that they can. And so mm-hmm. instead of judging them, be part of that decision, educate them, empower them, help them make a better decision. That's sort of empathy and humility, but recognize they know things you don't too. And sometimes, you know, they might not have the budget. They might not have the resources. They might know there's something looming on the horizon that's going to change the way that things work. And they have to make a decision right now in the context of that. And you don't know. So, you know, give people a break. Yeah, and you alluded to the SLAs
1: and the economics in it. I'm going to argue that the average security person, and I don't care if you're talking GRC, tech stack or whatever, the average security person is less savvy about the business than the average worker in a lot of other departments. A lot of other departments are much more aligned to the SLAs and the economics and, like you said, the deal that's looming on the horizon or the impact of this relationship or whatever it might be. And so I think to come from that place of arrogance as the security person You have to acknowledge your own ignorance when it comes to a bigger perspective, and you have to also acknowledge that security is but one piece of a larger puzzle, and that larger puzzle may actually be good enough without that one security piece stuck in it.
0: Yeah, you had a recent podcast, which I think uh, underlined that in a lot of different ways. And I've seen this in risk management as well, where when you really start to get into brass tacks about the risks that a company is facing, cyber is probably top of the list because of recency bias and the headline biases that people are putting on there. But when you really start to decompose it and you put it into the context of things like the talent war, which is not just a security problem, you put it in the context of the geopolitical consequences of the supply chain issues coming out of China and, and, and Taiwan. And it's probably not as big a deal as, as we make it out to be for most companies. And when you really start to qualify it, I've always said it's the security people that are going to be surprised, not the business people.
1: Right. Okay. So I think we're in agreement here on The mission. I think we're in agreement on its tie-in to this trust. And I love your trust model. I love the parenting model. You know, it's funny how the parenting model has come up more than once in more than one conversation on this show, talking to various folks in the industry. And I think it's the letting go aspect of it is why it's such a good model. It's that end of the parenting cycle, the letting go and the trusting, right? So. We've covered it for GRC. We've covered it for TechStack. Let's pivot completely and look at the vendors. Let's look at the ecosystem of vendors selling to us practitioners, right? How do the vendors do more by doing less? And how do they fit this trust and parenting model?
0: Yeah, they're a huge problem. And I'm, a you know, I, I work for a security vendor. I, I do too.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: I think the fact that there is a security vendor ecosystem is a huge issue. I think that uh, in defense of companies like Juniper and, and, you know, even some of our competitors, they are looking for ways to integrate. And I think that's great. That's what we really need. We really need Actual platforms, not security platforms, but like an actual, I think the closest thing I see out there is maybe like a Tanium, you know, where Mm -hmm. it does vulnerability assessment, it does compliance management, but it can also do the asset discovery. It can also do the patching. So it's sort of like a one-stop shop. I really think if the vendors were pursuing that sort of highly integrated cross-functional thing like, I don't need 10 agents on my workstation. I want one agent that actually manages it end to end. You know, I don't need to have all this network infrastructure when I've got all this other network. Like, why can't it all just work together? I think the whole notion of security as a buying center, separate from IT, created this Opportunity for vendors to pursue a separate budget pot, and that you know, in my opinion, it disincentivized them from creating integrated solutions because they like I'm not selling to IT, I'm selling to cyber, and then the, on the IT side, well, I'm not selling to cyber, I'm selling to IT, and so it's like they they should have had a, a who put their chocolate in my peanut butter moment, but but right. they never did. Yep, no, that's exactly right.
1: I think the schism there is traditional. I think it's it's entrenched. I think it's ironic, too, given all the conversations we have about reporting structures and, you know, CISO Mm. versus CIO and who should report to who and whatever, whatever. And yet that bifurcation of IT and cyber is there. The cyber budget, even if it's included in IT budget, is still a separate series of line items, usually with a separate percentile target, right? And I'm talking, you know, really big organizations IT gets X percent and security gets X percent of that or Y percent of that, right? So that bifurcation, I think, is is always there, which is interesting because I think that means IT is just as complicit in the bifurcation as, as we are. And I'm in agreement with this notion of the platforms. And, and I think Tanium is a great example because I'll, I'll tell you, I was in a shop that used Tanium and we also used CrowdStrike.
0: Mm-hmm. and
1: it was interesting to see how often each of the two would be calling us to say oh we got a module that does this oh well we got a module that does this we got a module <laughs> you know yeah. and the overlap between those two products had we enabled every module and every feature of both products there would have been like 30 or 40% overlap right so it wasn't just that these platform type framework type solutions are good they have to also get along with each other. And they have to be able to acknowledge when Tanium's going to do this module, that module, but not that one. Period. End of discussion. I'm handing that one to CrowdStrike, right? And CrowdStrike needs to acknowledge Tanium's going to be over here doing these other two. And you know, that balance between them. So it's an ecosystem challenge that's far greater even than their individual pursuit as, as vendors to get framework centric, right?
0: Yeah. and And, you know, we've talked about this as an industry for as long as I've been around, you know, how do we get common interoperable ways for these applications to talk to each other, to pass data to each other, to recognize, just as you said, even if both have the capability, I might choose one versus the other for a lot of other reasons. But I still want to get the same telemetry in a similar way, you know, we got to recognize that companies are going to do what they're going to do and empower them to be able to get the most out of these tools and solve the problems that are in front of them.
1: Yep. And I think a a clean turn off that module approach, right, on and off binary, you know, set of switches. I'm picturing one of those old school switch banks, up, down, up, down, up, 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 down, down, up, down, up, down. And then the other guy is the opposite, right? Down, up, down, up. And, And everything just plays well in harmony. Let's pause right there and hear a brief word from our sponsor. Howdy, y'all. Asset management for IT and security sure ain't easy, and our networks are fixing to get more complex. But I reckon there's a better way of doing things, and it starts with Axonius. Axonius helps you lasso everything in your environment, devices, users, software, and more, to provide an always up-to-date inventory, uncover gaps, and automate action. You want a free walkthrough of the platform? Head on over to axonius.com get Dash A dash tour, that's axonis dot com slash get dash A dash tour. So we've covered GRC, we've covered tech stack internal to the team, we've covered inner interactions with the rest of the team. We've talked a bit about the vendor ecosystem. This do more by doing less paradigm also would apply as consumers of the cybersecurity solution. So we talked about what the vendors need to do. What about we as the consumers? What are we doing wrong that's helping to encourage this do less by do more <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> ecosystem instead of do more by do less? Like, like, what can we do as, how do we put our foot down and tell the vendor community, no, 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 guys, we're going this way.
0: Yeah, this is a tough one. I've thought about this a lot and it's not a popular conclusion. I don't even know if it's a possible conclusion, but we almost have to get back to the point where we start over and the bifurcation needs to go away. We don't need... To have by and large security teams the way that we have them today. And I think the persistence of the us and the them, the cultural mm-hmm. differences, all these, the business versus technology, like these are all horrible things that don't help us be effective, but yet yeah. we can't eliminate them. So I would say that first and foremost, we need to really rethink, because like the whole separation of the technologists in cyber from the technologists in IT comes back to that trust issue as well. Like, I can't Mm -hmm. trust IT to do the right things. Like, I can't trust them to patch, so I've got to sit over here over their shoulder and scan. I can't trust them to build something properly, so I've got to do these tests on it, right? So, I mean, there's some dimension of trust but verify that's important, but I think we've over-rotated as an industry for far too So I would say that we really would need to fundamentally rethink the roles that a cyber organization needs to do. And then it's about changing the culture by changing our own mindsets. We need to get into that high trust mentality or at least the medium trust. We need to start letting people make decisions, living with the consequences and not thinking that those consequences are going to be stapled to our resume. And that organizational dynamic is is present, right? I I get it as much as anyone that people are going to do things and get blamed for it. But we've got to overcome that too. That's one of the cultural things of of re-educating the executive leadership. Like, we are not here to do this, we're here to do that. And helping them understand what our role really is, what we can effectively deliver as security executives. You know, I was at the Gartner event in Washington not too long ago, the Security and Risk Summit. And that was a, a huge part of it. It was like, how do you become an effective CISO? How do you re-educate people about what that is? And that same conversation has to happen. How do you become an effective risk person? How do you become an effective architect? And you're not the net nanny. You're not the one with perfect knowledge, as I said earlier. You've got to trust your colleagues. You've got to let them act. You've got to empower them and educate them and let them make the decisions that they think that are best for them, for their business, and for their organization. And then I think if we can do those things, then we're going to be building better relationships with our colleagues and that's a, a sort of a virtuous cycle that will begin we'll learn more we'll see more we'll be trusted more we'll trust more mm-hmm. and the more we do that the more we're going to get brought into things the more yep. we get brought yep. into things we'll have say, so, i mean it's like let's get our seat at the table by sort of relinquishing this demand that we are in control
1: right and it's interesting you brought up architects because if you ask me right now today in most shops, the architects are actually the ones doing it better than the rest of us. And the reason for that is, and again, we, we've kind of, we're both kind of indicating a big shop bias here, but if you have a cybersecurity architect, and you have solutions architect in IT, and you have an architectural committee, and you have other architects throughout the business that are coming in, and application architects, et cetera, et etc., cetera, if that architectural committee exists... It's really fascinating to me as CISO to periodically just poke my head into one of their meetings and listen.
0: Mm, And
1: what you will see is that the IT person came up with a security idea and the security person came up with an IT idea and the application person came up with an infrastructure idea and the database guy came up with an application idea. And you see this group of people That are sitting in a room, each officially representing a particular organization, mission, facet of the gym, whatever you want to call it. And yet when you lock them in the room together, they end up co-authoring all kinds of cool stuff, right? The architecture committees seem to be the place where this thing starts for me. And so the trick, I think, is how do we clone that success and that model out to the rest of it, right? Because I think that's where it begins. When you have security people suggesting non-security benefits and non-security people suggesting security benefits, you're already winning the game in my mind.
0: Yeah, I think what what you've done is you've created the right kind of pseudo-organization that should be an actual organization, right? So it, it should be that you have subject matter expertise from across different domains lumped into a team. There should never be this architect group versus that. There should just be like, what is our enterprise architecture and how do we get Mm -hmm. the right perspectives to solve that problem? And that that mindset is where we can, I think you're you're exactly right, look at the infrastructure. How do we best manage the infrastructure that we have to have? Let's not have like the infrastructure team and then the security infrastructure management people who want to sort of co-manage it. Let's just have an infrastructure team that happens to have some security expertise embedded into it. It's this no notion that we embed versus that we separate. I think that, and everywhere we can do that, we should be doing that.
1: Yeah, and I was just thinking the other places where that's already done, it's DevOps, right? The DevOps guys have been doing this right for a while now, too. Because this whole paradigm of DevSecOps, you don't have to emphasize the sec if DevOps is being done right. There's security expertise peppered throughout the entire DevOps organization through the CI/CD pipeline. And those teams tend to, in bigger shops that I've seen, tend to be more on top of that Embracing the interactivity, embracing the trust model that you espouse, like, so architecture committees, DevOps, we're seeing spots here and there now where they're doing it right. And I'm sure there's other examples I'll think of as soon as we finish recording, but that's at least two,
0: right? Yeah, yeah. Some of these SRE organizations, you know, I think cloud demands it in that the speed of cloud doesn't really allow and the speed of the development with cloud apps doesn't allow me to shell out and go talk to this other team, right? So Mm -hmm. I think the nature of that technology and the way that the business is leveraging, it demands that integration. And it's really holding on tight in the legacy technology spaces that work in that little more waterfall way. But you're right. There are sort of green shoots or or bright lights, and I think we'd all really do well to look at those, learn from them, and apply those lessons into the more traditional parts of the enterprise.
1: Yeah, I like it. So do more by doing less, when we first talked about that, we've obviously very much gotten into a trust conversation. We've gotten into a conversation about, you know, cooperation versus arrogance, et cetera. But when people hear do more by doing less, there's always that pressure from above. There's that unhealthy do more by doing less. And I'm wondering how do we dovetail all of these great ideas that we've come up with so far? I say we've come up with almost all of them. But let's take these good ideas we've come up with in this conversation and let's lay those up against that pressure you get from upstairs to do more by doing less, right? How do we yeah. demonstrate, you know, oh, hey, there is cost savings here. How do you demonstrate, look, 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 we are at our most efficient use of, of resources. And what's the business argument for everything we've discussed up to this point.
0: Yeah. You mentioned it earlier, the metrics, whether it's percent of revenue, percent of IT spend, headcount per headcount, you know, like number of security people per thousand employees, right? All these metrics that we have traditionally used or have tried to use to measure program effectiveness about growth. So they're about doing more to do more. And the essence of all of this, like the essence of trustworthiness, the essence of allowing that trust to permeate is scale, right? Mm -hmm. So I can't take your problem and try to make it my own and then solve it. I've got to trust you to solve it. And I've got to empower you with the right tools, the right processes, the right policies so that you have safe sort of guidelines to solve that problem within. Right? I don't want to just throw people to the wolves or or say, you know what, I'm going to just walk away from this and be in the ivory tower of governance. So it's, it's real important that we always remember all of this is that our part of the do more to do less is supporting the other people doing the more. Right. So our do less is mm-hmm. that how do we support and scale through empowerment? And when you start to think like that, you can really think of different metrics. How do you measure your program is the most important thing because it's how you talk about it to your leadership. And so instead of how big am I, how much are you spending on me, we need to get to that place of how effective am I and how effective is the program holistically, even the parts that I don't manage. I think it's, it's really important that we consider the holistic view of the risk. We don't try to bring the sausage factory forward to the leadership, that we're able to talk with one voice. So how quickly do you apply patches? Uh, how quickly are accesses removed after an employee is departed? How many of your vendors have a sort of a high-risk score? How many of your vendors have no score or no assessment, depending on, on your approach there? How many of your applications go into production with critical vulnerabilities unresolved? If you mm-hmm, start to measure mm-hmm. these outcomes now, you know, you don't really have to talk about how much money I spent to get here, how many people I needed to get here, because a lot of it can be influence, I can go influence the development team, and I can help them learn. And through that Mm -hmm. learning, they can get better at secure coding. And through that, they can reduce that number of bugs that go into production. And so now it's not about me, it's not about my team. It's about the outcomes that the organization wants to achieve. And, you know, you can get more efficient there, you can capture those efficient efficiencies and scale your function or you can return those efficiencies back to the to the budget and create savings but you always avoid the pressure of doing so sort of foolishly like so if i told you my measure of success is that i'm 10% of revenue in my budget and someone says well, this year you're going to be 9 am i a failure i don't know if next year you tell me i'm 12 right. am i a huge success i don't know but if I can tell you that our internal goal is to patch critical systems within 30 days and you cut my budget by X percent, that's going to cause us to go to 45 days. That's success or failure that is tangible and people can, right. can look at it and decide whether they want to make those economic choices. So mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. to me the, the secret of getting away from that pressure is by being transparent about what outcomes you're actually producing.
1: Yeah, I like that. I like that. And we're back to the, you used a different phrase for it, but it's the business first, risk second, tech third. I always espouse this on the show that we have to come to them in their language and their terms. And and that's exactly it. If the outcomes are outcomes they agree to the value of, now you've got a toggle. Now you have something you can say. If we make this change to the system, that outcome you want versus if we make this other change, that outcome you want is, is going to do some other thing.
0: This is good. This is really good stuff. Yeah, you know, that also works well on the onset, the front end. If you think about policy, I I like to use the analogy of a window sticker, right? Like Mm -hmm. I can buy a base model car and it's got everything I need to be a car. And we should be producing these sort of base model security programs that function basically and protect the company. But yeah, then uh-huh. we need to go to the co- to the business and, and when we want to add things, it's got to have a price because you go to somebody and say, you know what, I'd love to take your patch time from 45 days to 30 days. And they're going to say, that's great. But if you say, you know what, I'd love to take your patch time from 45 days to 30 days and it's going to cost you $2 million. I mean, you know what? 45 days is pretty good. If we can't give people the impact of our choices and help them make those informed decisions, then all the rest of this doesn't work. If we're hiding the most important. Important bits of data in that decision making for our own ends, I guess, is, is what I'd say. We don't want to do that. We want to really, that transparency needs to be both in, our, in ourselves as, as well as what we're measuring.
1: Well, fantastic, man. All right. I think this is a good wrapper for the show. I'm going to hit you with the question I ask every guest, which is if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about the cybersecurity industry, the landscape, the ecosystem,
0: your own job, whatever,
1: anything about cybersecurity, what would that one thing be that you would change?
0: Yeah, I would change the command and control mindset that came about when we made the decision to really build the the kind of crunchy outside soft middle perimeter model of security. You know, I I think there were a lot of decisions that we made at that time. We relied on the firewall in order to protect the company. And in doing so, we got away from the notion of understanding what the business was doing. We created this perimeter model and we said, you know, we're going to keep you safe on the edge, and you do whatever you need to do in the middle. And that was one of the first things that created the us and them mindset that, you know, we're here protecting you. You don't need to worry about security. You can just go ahead doing business, building applications, building infrastructure, whatever that is. And I think all the things we see today are unwinding that mentality with zero trust and these other things where, you know, the network can be anything. The network can be the internet for all we know and the applications have to defend themselves the application developers need to be sharper identities need to be the thing that we're protecting people need to be a lot sharper themselves about how they protect their identity all these things we, we could have had these uh, 15, 20 years ago if we would have instead of saying we're going to build this perimeter model if we said you know what We're going to build this model that is sort of respecting that business risk needs to be catered to, but that business people have a stake in catering to that risk. I Mm -hmm. also think that there were some mindset issues that come in with that, this command and control approach. When you have a perimeter, when you have an us and them, you have a group that is making decisions about what another group can do and that brings in a, a personality that's not always collaborative and I think a lot of our doctor No legacy stems from those personalities being in positions of prominence because the firewall was such an obvious point of control and mm-hmm. uh, they lorded they lorded that over the, the the sort of company and and you know what I don't think what you're doing is right and so I'm not going to open a rule for that that mentality has done more damage than good and I think we are getting past it, but like I said, we could have probably gotten past it much sooner.
1: Yeah. And there's, there's other mindsets and mentalities that come along with that whole package as well. Right. Because, you know, when you're the guards out on the parapet in the rain and the cold, while the, while the uh, king and the queen are inside dining on a delicious meal, you develop a certain sense of separation. You develop a certain sense of pride in the drudgery you, you know what I'm saying? Like there's almost a, a martyrdom kind of thing there. There's almost a superhero syndrome thing there. And there's That's almost right. a, well, of course it's going to suck kind of mindset there. We love the suck, embrace the suck. And, yeah. and all of those types of mindsets can also contribute negatively towards this entire model that we've been building as we've had this conversation of a more cooperative, unified. Those mindsets aren't present in the room when you peek in on that architecture committee and listen to them going. You don't see the superhero mindset. You don't see the command and control mindset. You don't see the martyr mindset. You don't see the isolationist mindset. And what you see is a whole bunch of people who say, rather than embrace the suck, let's change the suck,
0: right? That's it. That's right. I think that one of the key things, you have to believe that you're empowered to do that, that you can make decisions that will change the outcomes, that you're not forced, right? When you have that to your to the parapet model, if you're forced to man the walls, you're forced to man the walls, and there's no other choice for you except to do that. And the people on the inside don't appreciate all the sacrifices you're making on their behalf, but they never asked you to make right. those sacrifices.
1: Exactly. That's that's that martyr complex. Yeah.
0: That's it. Yeah. That's
1: exactly it. All right. Well, Drew Simonis, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now.